All right. Well, I wanted to, this morning, leave Romans to the master of Romans, Jim. And so we're going to take a break from Romans this week. And we, I want to go to the Psalms for just a morning and study a psalm and just celebrate the greatness of our God who actually condescends to speak to us. Our God actually wants to be known by us, which I feel sometimes, at least myself, I take for granted. We're part of a Bible church. We open the Bible in the morning. We talk about the Bible at, uh, uh, when we gather for corporate worship. But just to step back and say, the God of the universe, the infinite, actually wants to be known by us and communicates in a way that we can comprehend him. And so I want to just celebrate that uh, this morning a little bit and go to Psalm 19, a well-known psalm. Some of you may even know parts of it off by heart, but I want to study this together today. Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19, again, you may already know this, but it's really nicely divided up into three kind of stanzas or sections, and they are beautifully progressive. So the psalmist, who we're told at the beginning here, is David. We don't know a whole lot about the circumstances. We can guess, but really we don't know a whole lot about why he wrote this or what was going on in his life when he did. But he writes in such a way that it it progresses toward application. So you may be very familiar with the opening verses, the heavens declare the glories of God. Um, And he goes on for six verses talking about what we might call general revelation or natural revelation, creation screaming God's existence and his power. And then in verse 7, 8, and 9, he switches quite noticeably to talk about what we might call special revelation or how he declares himself in a different way than creation but in his word. And we'll talk about that as well. But you'll notice how it builds on the first. So he declares himself generally and then he declares himself specially and as we'll see salvifically. He declares himself in his word. And then in 10 and following, he kind of starts talking about his response to it. So God reveals himself in these ways and this is how he walks into that. This is how he then responds to a God who reveals himself. And that's kind of where we land and we can really apply that to us today and think about how The fact that we serve a God who speaks, what that should do to us in our hearts and how we should respond to that reality, okay? So let me pray for us, and then I want to walk through this psalm together. And again, a well-known psalm, but sometimes they're well-known for a reason. You you think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Why is that so well-known? Because it's so powerful and because we want to understand that he is our shepherd. He leads us in these ways, and it's the same with Psalm 19. So let me pray, and then we'll get into this psalm together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself, that you want to be known by us, and that you're a good communicator, and that you mean what you say. And so we can actually understand when you speak. And so we're asking that you help us today by the power of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and the Holy Spirit that wrote these words, help us to understand them rightly, help us to marvel at you appropriately, and help us to walk in these truths transformatively. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, how about someone read for us the first six verses, that well-known opening stanza of this psalm. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. These use no words. Sorry, they use no words. No sound. 
sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is defied from its works. Thank you. Have you ever had a time where you are encountering nature or something in natural revelation and you're just in awe? It moves you to awe? You ever experienced that? I remember delivering newspapers as a young boy in Saskatchewan. And there's not a whole lot to look at in Saskatchewan, but the sky is pretty incredible. Right? Like you go out in the morning in the prairie sky where it's often clear, there's not often a lot of clouds, and it is stars and it is northern lights dancing across the heavens. It is something to behold. And I remember as a 12-year-old standing there and being like, good God. Like, it is unbelievable. Breathtaking at times. Uh, I don't know, have you experienced something like that? I'm curious. When? When I was, uh, we were in uh, Kenya on a holiday uh, from our mission in Zambia. We went up the side of Mount Kenya. And uh, halfway up the side of Mount Kenya, there is a tropical rainforest. And uh, I walked into that rainforest. There, there was green all along the, the floor of the rainforest. There was green in the forest canopy. And the sun was filtering through. Mm-hmm. Everything looked perfectly, just perfectly green. Mm-hmm. And sitting in the middle of this area was a great big baboon. <laughs> I thought to myself, my God, this, my God is great. This is a, most amazing. This baboon was just sitting there looking at me, and I was looking at him. And uh, uh, I suspect he was enjoying the, 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 uh, the beauty of that sanctuary just mm-hmm. as much as I was. It was, a, it was an awesome moment. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. Wow. Anyone else? We've got Zambia, South Africa, 
uh, Hong Kong, Jamaica, Saskatchewan. One of these things is not like the other, I understand. One of these things just doesn't belong. But it's amazing. Like, creation is beautiful. And according to this psalm, it declares the glory of God. Now, glory is one of those things that's hard to get our minds around what that is exactly, his essence or all that he is. But in, in poetry in Hebrew, it oftentimes uses what's called parallelism. Right? So it will rhyme in Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme words like we do, but it rhymes ideas. And so in Hebrew poetry, oftentimes the second line will clarify what the psalmist means by the first line. So declaring the glory of God and their expanses of declaring the work of his hands. So we see, okay, in this case, what is the glory? It's his handiwork on display. It's beautiful. And I think, for sure, creation, the, the sunrises, the flowers, the baboons, whatever the case may be, is declaring the glory of God. But it's more than that. I remember one of the formative moments in my life. I have a, one of my, uh, my undergraduate degrees in kinesiology. I remember sitting in an anatomy and physiology class and hearing this professor in a review session talk about the endocrine system and the skeletal system, the muscular system of the human body and how it all works together and how it works in perfect harmony, a very fragile harmony, but at the same time very resilient. I remember sitting back as an 18-year-old or whatever I was and just saying, how could anyone believe this was an accident? So it's not just the sunrise, it is everything. A couple weeks ago, my son grabbed a burning pot and burned his hand out and it bubbled up in a, you know, a nice little surgical glove-looking blister thing, and it healed. And we see it now. It shrinks back down, new skin underneath. You look at it like, that's amazing. It is amazing. Our God on display, his power. Now, not everyone sees that, right? Not everyone sees what David is declaring here. And remember, who was David before he became king? Who was he? The shepherd. So he's out in the fields. You've got to think he's drawing on his, uh, his memory banks here, if he's not there at that moment. He's looking at the stars. He's looking at the wilderness. He's looking at all these. The heavens declare the glory of God. Even looking at the sheep, maybe. You know, the heavens declare. Look how trusting they are. How vulnerable they are. Look how the heavens, everything declares the glory of God. Now he goes on to say, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What does that add to the picture here? So he's just in awe of what God has done. What does that second verse add to the picture? That's neat. Very neat. Yeah. And he'll get to that, especially in verse 6, where he says, nothing is hidden from its heat, right? We're really focused on the sun. But you almost get the sense in verse 2 that there's no off switch. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's incredible, the work of his hands. Day to day, night to night, it does not shut up. It is always, God is awesome. God is awesome. All nighttime, daytime, it doesn't matter. It is always ongoing. Now, in verses 3 and 4, it, it seems to almost contradict itself, right? Did you notice that? So he says, as Christine read, there's no speech, nor are their words, their voice is not heard. Their line or their sound, I could say, their sound has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance is to the end of the world. So it's not saying anything, but it's saying something. How do we understand that, verses 3 and 4? 
Is he just confused? He's just a shepherd boy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or is he doing something intentional there? Oh, that's true. The sky and see the stars. That's so true. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the comment is we don't take time like David is here to actually appreciate creation. We're just rushing. Go, 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 fill the schedule, and we don't stop to actually just look up to what is there or look to see what's happening with creation, how the Lord has ordered things, for sure. Even though it is loud and it is ongoing and relentless. Now, when he says this, you know, uh, in verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words, that's true, right? It's not like the son is saying, da 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 da, here's the Lord. Like, it's not shouting that. But then in verse 4, at the same time, it is shouting that. That's the, the marvel of it, right? There's no voice, obviously. But there's a voice. There's a loud voice, a declaration of who God is. In fact, you've been through this over the last year or so in Romans. Do you hear a parallel here to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, as we think about all of Scripture, it should start coming to mind where it says, let's just turn there for a moment. I know you thought you were free from Romans, but here we go. Back in Romans. All lead, roads lead to Rome, right? Um, so Romans chapter 1. Now, it's in a bit of a different context, but I, this is speculation. I think Psalm 19 is in Paul's mind when he's writing Romans 1, at least, at least this part, where he says in verse 20, of Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So when we go back to Psalm 19, it says they're telling the glory of God and the work of his hands. We say, okay, what is general revelation saying about God? Well, Paul says, well, at least two things, his divine attributes and his eternal power are on display. What attributes do you think are on display when we look at creation? When you think of God and you step back and you look at the expanse, what parts of God's character do you feel are on display? Order. That's a great one, Heather. Yeah, order. There is, in fact, the whole scientific enterprise is based on the fact that we have a creation that is predictable and ordered. We can't observe and repeat scientific experiments unless there is a predictability to creation. Our God is a God of order and not chaos. It's a great one. What else? Excellent. How so? Well, because it's so beautiful. Yes. Excellent. I mean, he could have just put us in a gray box and say, you know, glorify me, but he didn't, right? The, the flowers that come for a, an hour or two. Why? We would say, why would he bother with that? That seems so superfluous. That seems so unimportant. It pleases him, though, you know, because he loves us. He wants to enjoy things like that, the, the baboons in the sanctuary, etc. It's amazing. What else? Yes, very good. It's a resilient creation too, isn't it? Yeah, wonderful. What else? We have his order, his love. What else? His power. His power. 
goodness, you see a storm? I remember driving through tornadoes in Texas, the sky that grows this eerie, I don't even know how to describe this color. We found shelter under a, um, a gas station. I don't know, in retrospect, that was the best place to be. But that's where we found, anyway. And you just look at these, these lightning strikes and, and the, the winds picking up. You're like, goodness, we are, we are impotent. We are in, and it's mercy. Yeah, that's right. It's mercy in response. But you just, there, there's power. If you're, we were on a cruise a number of years ago, and you look over the side, you can't see anything around but water. And you look at the waves hitting the ground, and you think, power. Goodness, power. Great one. What else? See what we look at. Wisdom. And it kind of connected to the order of things, right? You know, the, he has orchestrated, put all these things together. What about his creativity? He is so unbelievable. His creativity knows no bounds. You see these variations of monkeys and trees and flowers and even of people. Think. And why would he be creative other than just to demonstrate his creativity, glorify himself? Anything else? His faithfulness Wonderful, yeah. Not only does he create it, we don't believe in a watchmaker God who created it, wound it up, and then steps back and just watches it go. We believe in a God who is involved and keeps things running. What else? He's so patient. Yeah, long-suffering. Yeah, for sure. So again, we could go on, but this is what the heavens are declaring. Now notice, and we'll get to this in a moment here, none of those things are saving. That's what we need to, nothing in general revelation, natural revelation, saves us. It still declares his glory, but as Paul identified in Romans 1, it is so that we are without excuse. It's actually a condemning revelation. It's awe. It's it's awe-inspiring, especially for those who are children of God. It's awe-inspiring. But for those who are not, it is a condemning revelation, which seems so counterintuitive. It's beauty, but then it's actually condemning at the same time, which makes it, to me, all the more harsh, all the more dire. Well, let's keep going in this first stanza here. So then he likens creation, and the sun specifically, and he's using kind of the sun as a stand-in for all of creation, the heavens, right? And he says... This sun, he places in the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. So really, this is David talking about his baboon experience, his northern lights experiences. He's sitting out in the field and he sees this sun and he's watching it march across the skies. And that's what he's describing. Like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run its course rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other, to the end of them. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Isn't that just a wonderful picture of the sun? It's like, it, its tent is almost like the horizon. It goes to sleep, and then it comes up glorious and like it's enjoying, just trotting across again like a strong man, running its course with joy, like it was made to do. It's a brilliant picture. of He's looking at the sun and be like, this is awesome. Our God is awesome. It's just a great picture. Now, what is the role of general revelation? We kind of talked about it a second there where it's condemning. But what role does general revelation, what the things we talked about, play in salvation, if any? So it's still God speaking. He's revealing himself mercifully. It doesn't save, but can it bring someone close? What, what is its role in salvation? How do we understand that? It's an important reminder for some of us today, right? That we're not as big as we think we are. Just to be reminded that we are, there's something bigger out there. 
It's a resetting to be dealt with as well. What else? That's such a good point. It makes us yearn for the perfect, right? So what David is describing here, what we've talked about so far today, it's fallen. That's the crazy part, is that as beautiful as it is, and as awe-inspiring as it is, it's fallen. It's not as it was, and it's not as it one day will be. That he's going to make a new heavens and new earth without sin. Remember in the garden, sin comes into the world, and everything is fractured. Thorns and thistles... You know, creation against itself, animals start eating each other. That's not going to be the lion and the lamb will one day lay down together. So this creation, as wonderful and majestic as it is, it's fallen, and it won't always be. So it should, like Alice is saying, make us yearn for, like that sunrise. Imagine what that will be like on the new heavens and new earth. Like it's awe-inspiring now. Oh my goodness. It's going to knock us back when we see it for the first time in glory. But again, it can't save us as beautiful as it is. Because, let's review, what saves us? Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, what saves people? Jesus. Faith, right? Faith in God's promises. He has made promises to bring a deliverer and to redeem all things. We trust him for that. And we are, like Abraham was, it's counted to us as righteousness. Right? The sun doesn't do that. You know, baboons don't do that. The northern lights don't do that. But they can point us to the reality that we are smaller than we might think we are in our successes in life. That there is something bigger. That there is order. That there is majesty. That there is all of these things. And so it can lead us to a place, depending on how we respond to that general revelation, right? Um, but we can also, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 1, we can harden ourselves against it as well. In fact, that's what he points out in Romans 1, doesn't he? That they see this creation, and instead of honoring the creator... What do they do? They worship the creation rather than the creator. And so then what does God do? Remember from Romans 1? It says three times he gave them over. That's the verb. He gives them over. He says on megaphone, here I am. And they said, nah, unimpressive. Or we're going to reject you. And so he gives them over to the foolishness of their mind. And thinking they are wise, they make themselves fools. So he gives them over. He gives them over to the debased nature of who they are. And it's just this downward spiral because they're rejecting revelation. And so not only are they rejecting general revelation, but they actually in the process close themselves off and callous their hearts against special revelation, that which can save them. And so there is a sense in which general revelation, it seems can be a, a, an on-ramp towards special revelation that actually saves. But depending on how we respond to revelation, sometimes we can harden ourselves off from any other revelation. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 13, I think we saw that when we were going through the parables, the kingdom parables, and he tells the parable of the sower scattering the seeds. And it's the first parable of this long list of parables talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. And the whole point of the parable is, listen, the, the seed is revelation from God. Depending on how the soil receives it, more will come, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. But if we harden ourselves to that revelation, what we have will be taken away from us. 
So we, we say, what do we do with this revelation? Well, we can be like, oh, God, you are, if you're out there at all, you are awesome. Whatever is going on is powerful, and God will bring more revelation until we get to a place of saving revelation. Um, he does not condemn people who do not have access to revelation. There's no such thing as someone who has ac- no access to revelation. It is all around screaming, as we saw in the first stanza of Psalm 19, declaring, telling the glory of God, declaring the work of his hands. Any questions about that before we move on to special revelation? Okay. It's just kind of interesting that every day of your life, God reminds you. Every day. Every day. Day to day, night to night, there is no off switch. It is constant. You know, wake up in the morning, you fill your air with that first conscious breath. It's a gift from the Lord. My lungs are working. The diaphragm, everything's working. The blood is going through my veins, and it sustained me all night long in spite of myself, even though I was unaware. God, you are awesome. You are patient. You are merciful. You are powerful. All of those things. But like has been said, sometimes we zip through life and we don't stop to acknowledge his mercy and his power and his magnificence. All right, let's get to special revelation because it seems like a jarring change that David makes next. The sun is beautiful. The sun is the law. And he goes right to the law. It almost seems like a step down to us because we want to marvel at his awesomeness and we come to a book. That's where David goes next. And this is really a progression to him. He doesn't see this as a step down, a demotion in worship. He sees this as a further apex of God's revelation. God is amazing to reveal himself in creation. He's even more amazing and merciful to reveal himself as he has in his word. And so in these three verses, what we have are six statements where he uses synonyms of the scriptures. So what does he say? The law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, judgments. It's all synonyms for the word of God. And then what's followed is... A, um, a characteristic of the word of God, and then what it does. Okay, so let's have someone read those three verses, seven, eight, and nine, and then we'll unpack them a little bit. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, Perfect. All right. So let's talk about each of these in turn. You can see the same admiration goes through this second stanza as through the first. Like a strong man, the heavens declare. But when he turns to the word of God, it's still a high level of admiration, isn't it? Like he's still pretty much in awe of this, uh, this special revelation. So first, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Maybe yours has a different translation, perfect. What do we think of when we think of perfect? Scriptures are perfect. What is it? Does your translation say something other than perfect? Or everyone has perfect? Could be translated, they're enough. They're sufficient. They are perfect to accomplish that which they are supposed to accomplish. This is a big, we've talked about this in this class before, this is a big, um, a significant characteristic of the word of God that's under attack in the church today. Not Oak Ridge necessarily, but the church as a whole. You know, the sufficiency of it. It's perfect. This is enough to do what it's supposed to do. All scriptures God breathed and useful. In it, the man of God is sufficient, has everything he needs for life and godliness. This is enough. So it's perfect. And what does it do? So in its perfection, it 
restores the soul. Why does our soul need restoring? Anyone ever experienced that? Or your soul, your inner self just needs a pick-me-up? Or am I the only one? I'm the only one. Okay. How, and here's David. We don't know what stage of life he's at. But he's like, the law of the Lord. And remember, when he says the law, what's he talking about here? He's not talking about Philippians. He's talking about like Leviticus and numbers and stuff like that. You know, he's like, really, David? You know, I, I've read that before. I don't know if I would characterize Leviticus as restoring my soul. That says there's something wrong with me, not the word. David looks at it and he says, there's something about God's gracious provision of revelation that just restores his soul. That when he's weary and when he's downtrodden, maybe by his own sin, as we'll come to in a minute here, he goes to the word and he sees provision for his sin. He sees a God who makes promises and keeps those promises. It restores his soul. That's what the word does. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sure. What, is, what comes to mind when you think about a testimony that commands the scriptures being sure? What are they? Some synonyms for that. Trustworthy. Trustworthy. No Sorry? No doubts. No doubts reliable. What he says is what he said, and we can know what he said and take it to the bank. It is sure what he has said. Now, we need to be careful as people of God not to say things, make promises for God that he himself has never made. Sometimes we do that. Well, God says those, he helps those who help themselves, right? Like, well, God has never said that, but it sounds really good. It sounds like it could fit into a book of the Bible. We want to be careful, but the things he has said, it is an absolute certainty. He says to Israel, I'm going to give you a land. Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless the world through you. And David's looking back to that. He's looking around the world when he writes this and saying, where is this blessing, Lord? This world is falling apart. We've got enemies on either side of Israel, all this kind of stuff. Where is this? But he's saying, he said it's going to happen. So it's going to happen. You know, it's a sure thing. And why would that make wise the simple? The fact that it's reliable, it's sure. We don't have to search within ourselves for truth, but um, we can find the wise person will look beyond themselves and, and uh, even though we can't understand it, know yeah. where to go to find the truth. So I guess that makes it Yeah, and Kathy just offended everyone in this world right now. You know, with that statement. She's saying, you know, we don't have to find truth from within us, which is the mantra of our world, right? Find the truth, make your truth, cultivate your truth. And God is saying, no, 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 you don't have to worry about that. He loves simple people who understand who they are under the expanse of the heavens and say, I'm going to depend on your wisdom, God, because it's sure. We don't have to cultivate and curate our own truth. God has said what is true, and he is sure in what he says and sufficient to bring that to pass. I mean, that's a huge weight off our shoulders, that we don't have to define truth and protect truth. God has done that. So like, I'm just going to go to his word where he says what's true. Leave it to the one who created all of this. Maybe he might know better. And David finds solace in that. The precepts of the Lord are right. I think this one's pretty clear. They're upright. They are, they are moral. They're good, rejoicing the heart. Those of us made in the image of God, which is everyone, long to see justice and morality reign. And in our world, we might redefine what that is at times. We play with morality. But in our heart of hearts, the people who ache for justice, that is a God-honoring trait. We might ache for it in the wrong ways and redefine justice. But the longing for justice and rightness is a God-honoring 
image of God remnant sticking around, even though the fall is there. And he's saying the law, the precepts of the Lord are right, and they rejoice the heart. Because we see them, we read them, we say, oh yeah, I want that. I want that perfection. And, and David would eventually get the promise from God. I don't know if it's, he's already got it here or not. But when he comes along in 2 Samuel 7, says, through you, I'm going to build a righteous kingdom that will last forever through your seed. He's like, man, I, I want that. I want that perfected kingdom. And I think we do as well. So it brings that rejoicing to the heart. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is sure, enlightening the eyes. Or is pure, sorry, is pure. What does uh, another translation say? A verse, the second half of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is? Radiant. Oh, that's a good one. Radiant. Almost kind of harkens back to the sun marching across the sky, right? It's radiant. Enlightening the eyes. There's something, and this is what we, in, um, in egghead Bible talk, we call it the perpiscuity of Scripture. It's one of the, the characteristics of the Scripture that's clear. That it is, there's, there are complicated things in this book, no doubt. But God has spoken, and he's actually a pretty good communicator, and he wants us to know him. We don't need a Rosetta Stone to understand the word. He wants to be known. What he says is clear for us. And he says here, the commandment of the Lord, and the commandment is singular, the whole thing, the commandment of the Lord, it's clear, it's plain. And that enlightens the eyes. There's something thrilling about the clarity of speech. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's a purity. There's something like pure water. It's, there's no tarnishing in it. There's no contaminants. And it endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. There's a veracity to them. A, um, in a world of fake news and half-truths today, not sure what to believe, the word of God, it is 100% true. They are righteous altogether. I mean, in our world today, you look at the heavens, praise God, like, wow, we are so small. He is powerful. He is majestic. He is all those things that we talked about. And we look to the special revelation to the word of God and say, wow, it's just like a scalpel. It's pure and right and perfect and sure. It's everything we ache for in our fallen creation, right? The word of God promises and provides. So do you see how he's kind of taking this massive thing and funneling it down to the perfection of scripture? Do you see that? Like it's, it's not a step down, like grandeur and then a book. Like kind of like, you know, if you really want to be in awe of God, go back to nature. That's where we find it. It's true, but this is where we find the real awe of God's character and the promises he's made. It's amazing. So we ripped through that pretty quick. Any, any other observations from there that I'm bypassing quickly or things that stood out to you that impressed upon your spirit? You can see this is why we make a big deal of the Bible, or we should in church. This is why, because it is these characteristics. You know, however slick the speaker may be, they're not these things, not consistently. No matter how good the programs are at a church, no matter who, how good the marketing in, it's never these things. You know, this is all that there is. And so if you have anyone that is standing up there and saying, let's become more like Christ together. Let's pursue Christ-likeness. Let's do God's mission in this world. And they don't say, please turn in your Bibles. Find an exit. There's just nothing there of substance that cannot be corrupted. It's only God's word that can bring about the surety, the purity, the cleanness, endure forever. All of those things. It's only this. 
That's why everything we do, and you may not be aware of this, but we try to at Oak Ridge anyway, every facet of corporate worship is tethered to the word. We try to sing the word, we try to pray the word, we try to taste the word and, and drink the word in communion, we try to go with a benediction from the word. It's all about this because of, not because we're worshiping this book, but because God has spoken, and he's spoken here most exactly. You know, I had, uh, that, our first house that we bought was in Swift Current, and when we moved in, it was, uh, in Swift Current, there was a research station, like a ecological research station outside, and so there's people from the government that came to work in Swift Current, and one of the workers had our house, we bought it from her, and she was a herbologist, plantologist, greenologist, I don't know what they were called, but she was out there, she took care of the flowers and stuff, and the backyard and the front yard of our house were monuments to creation. She had an homage in the front yard of all these prairie plants and on these uh, different uh, sprinkler systems in the back. It was flowers. It was beautiful. Uh, and a year later, because we didn't know how to take care of it, it was chaos. But at the time, it was beautiful. Um, but our neighbors, after we moved in, came over because we ended up taking a bulldozer in and taking it all out and putting grass down. Our one, after our one kid fell into a rose bush, we were like, okay, this is not practical anymore. We need to put some sod down. But our neighbors came over and said, yeah, she used to hold seances to the trees and sing praises to the trees and light candles to the bushes, yeah. worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Is that very man? Now, I'm with her. It is beautiful, and it says something about our creator, but it always funnels us to something more he said, something more exact. We don't want to stop at creation, and we don't want to regress to creation only. We want to use it as a springboard to come to the exact things that he said about himself. Um, it should be the funnel that way. And our culture is kind of using it the opposite direction, right? Don't study a book. Let's go out and be with God in creation kind of thing. So we just want to be very um, biblical in the way we think about how God speaks about himself and how he reveals himself. So let's see what it does for us. So, and what it does for David specifically, but maybe we can relate to him a little bit, starting in verse 10. So he's just reflected on general revelation. God, you're awesome. And then talked about the exact nature of special revelation. In verse 10, he's still talking about special revelation. He says, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And you think about the day and age in which he's writing. Those are probably two of the most valuable things or sweetest things. Gold and honey. Is there anything more sweet and pure than honey in his day? So he's likening the commandments, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, generation. He's talking about those as being sweet and rich. And I read that honestly, and I'm pretty uh, convicted and humbled. So David looks at the law, and he can sincerely say, there's nothing I would desire more than that, than being in your word. Like, oh, man. Like, I like the word of God. I don't know if I can say what he said. I'm going to give myself an out and say that he was saying that as a prayer, <laughs> that he's praying that it would be that, but I'm not sure that's true. I think I'm letting myself off the hook too, too easily there. I think he desires it because he knows what it is. And he says, I just, I want to taste it. I, I, there's nothing sweeter than that. And there's nothing more precious to me. The armies can come and take away my kingdom, but if they take your word from me, then I'm truly poor. It's, it's honestly a gut check verse for me. I read that, I'm like, and then I stop and I pray, Lord, I don't think I'm where David was when he wrote this, but I want to be one day. So whatever that takes, get me to a place where I depend on your self-revelation, your self-disclosure, and just love it. Just love being in it. And maybe you all are there. Praise God for that. That's, I think that's a gift from the Lord. 
Uh, but there is a bit of conviction for me anyway when I read that verse. And then look what it does to him. Verse 11. And this might even make it more confusing to me, actually, why he loves it so much because of what it does to him. Because <laughs> it's kind of painful at times. Verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. How does the word of God warn us? Your servant being himself. So let's personalize this. How is the word of God warning? I think it goes back to verse 9, where it says the fear of the Lord is pure. Uh, God is teaching us to fear him, to fear the consequences of our sin and unholiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, because he's a holy God and he wants us to be holy. He's a holy philosopher and holy. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the, he's teaching us to fear the things that we ought to fear. Mm. And he warns us of, our, of the consequences of our sins and ungodliness. Excellent. Ecclesiastes, not the same author, but Ecclesiastes has, it's his David's son, right? He's saying, I've tried everything with all my resources to find the meaning of life, to find satisfaction. But it all amounts to this. Fear God. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. You know, and so there is something warning in that, cautionary about as God reveals himself. We should be uh, excited to taste it and be embraced by it. But then at the same time, it's, but at the same time, I want to almost recoil from its awesomeness. That it, all at once I'm feeling pulled and pushed away because it's so amazing. Right? There's, a, there's a warning in there. And we know in Christ... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that we are saved forever, um, hidden in Christ, as Paul likes to say. But there is still discipline when we sin. He can rebuke as a loving father does. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be rebuked and punished. And so there is a healthy fear that comes along with walking in holiness. In fact, Psalm 1 kind of sets out those two paths. Those who walk according to the Lord's statutes, like a tree by the, the stream, and it's beautiful, and those who don't, there's trouble. And that includes for believers as well. It's not that our eternal salvation is at stake, but there are consequences to sin. Hebrews, 1 John, those books make it very clear. Our fellowship with the Lord can be harmed. Our experience of the joy of the Lord can be harmed if we walk in sin. Not our eternal state but our, how we enjoy that. And we see this in relationships all the time, earthly. My kids will never stop being my kids, but if they take a crowbar to the side of the car, our relationship will be harmed. And we will not be walking in close fellowship until there is repentance and reconciliation. If I sin against my Heavenly Father, I'm still His child. It's just that our relationship will be harmed until there is repentance. So there's warning in the Word of God that brings us because God lovingly wants us to walk in fellowship with Him. It's his extension of love to us. And David sees that as well. And you'll notice here why he can say that it's like gold and honey, because he longs to walk in fellowship with God. That's why he likes the warnings. He likes the warnings because it keeps him, it hems him in into enjoying that relationship with God. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. This is, uh, in James, it talks about the, the word of God being a mirror. Right? You remember that metaphor where... Sometimes, you know, what does the fool do, according to James? He looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like and does whatever he wants. Well, the word of God, like, it shows us who we are. And I wouldn't know, as Paul says, I wouldn't have known what, what this sin was unless the law told me what that sin was. So there's something in the, in the word of God that shows me errors that I didn't even know were there. 
sin in me, I'll speak for myself, is so ingrained. There are times I'm not even aware of sins that I'm doing. And I look in the Word and praise God. He actually says, here's what sin looks like. I say, oh, thank you, God. That was harming my fellowship with you. I didn't even know it. (laughs) And so it's it's reflecting back to these hidden faults. Equip me of my hidden faults. I love that prayer as well. I don't know if you've ever prayed that. But Lord, if there's sin in me anywhere that I'm not aware of, forgive me. Forgive me. Because I know that there's sin I'm not aware of. Because I'm still learning it after years of following him. So there's... You know, if the trajectory is continued, I'm sure that there's more I'm going to learn in the future as well. Verse 13, and then he switches. Also, keep back your servant for presumptuous sins. What's a presumptuous sin? Maybe your translation says something different. Willful sins. So notice what he did. Forgive me of the ones I don't know about. And then the ones I do know about that are saying, come after me again. Lord, forgive me of those habitual sins. Forgive me of the ones that I would actually do knowing that they're wrong. So he's covering all his bases here. And how does he know what are presumptuous sins again? It's from the word of God. It's from that which is true and and clear. Forgive me from those. And he continues, let them not rule over me. Isn't that true? That those presumptuous sins, the one we walk into, they can just, they can grab on and not let us go. Rule over us. Even though we've been freed from that reign into the reign of Christ, sometimes we walk out of that open jail cell and we go right back like a dog to its vomit. We return to the sin we know is wrong. And he's saying, Lord, help me. This is even David. Help me. A man after God's own heart. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. What a prayer. Again, notice the, the, the trajectory of the psalm. God is amazing. He's revealed himself in his word. And look what the word does to us. It shows us where we're wrong and it promises acquittal and forgiveness when we ask for it. And then this beautiful prayer, this wonderful kind of benediction at the end. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There it comes. And so it comes to that spear's point at the end. You've revealed yourself. You've revealed yourself specifically and clearly and truthfully. I want to walk in the knowledge of that because that's where fellowship with you is at. Lord, give me a clear heart. May everything I am, everything that comes out of me be pleasing to you in light of your self-revelation. So the the order is very important in this psalm to know that. It's right through the word of God beckoning us to a right relationship with God. Even those of us who are saved. And we are right with God through the blood of Christ. But we want to walk in fellowship with him as well. And we all know from experience, well, I shouldn't, I won't project on you. I know from experience that there are times where I know I'm saved by God and I'm not walking in perfect fellowship with him. David here knows that as well. He's saying, Lord, I want to, and I want everything that comes out of me to be acceptable in your sight because you are my rock and my redeemer. We oftentimes think redeemer is such a New Testament thing, don't we? That Jesus is our redeemer. This is David saying, Yahweh is my redeemer. We talked to the beginning, how is anyone saved? Old Testament, New Testament, by believing, by faith in the promises of God that he's given by grace. And here he says, my redeemer, that God is going to redeem me. God is going to redeem me. And he's believing that. Observations. Anything I missed? Um, this is such a lovely psalm. So you mm. can tell that David is walking with God. When, when you are walking with him in fellowship, he has brought him to so many issues and troubles. So he knows that he could never depend on himself. For sure. That's great, Rose. Yeah. Yeah. 
one day we'll learn. In the, in the main service, we're going to talk about uh, a 21st century swear word, which is submission. That's what we're going to be called to today from Matthew, submission. Life goes better when we submit to the Lord. <laughs> it does. Uh, I don't know why I'm so rebellious in my heart at times, um, but I am. And I think it's because I lose sight of the awesomeness of God, his mercy in revealing himself, and I lose sight of all of these things, and that's when rebellion rises up in me. But you're right, Rose. Like, going under the Lord, submitting to his will, and doing things his way, actually, surprise, surprise, goes better for us when we do that. Sometimes we have to learn that the hard way, but again, I have to learn that, though. I don't want to project. I'm sure I'm alone in that. Anything else? Just that there, there are three steps here that uh, are beautiful. We've been talking about God's revelation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three parts are God revealed in creation, God revealed in his word, and God revealed in me. Mm-hmm. What, how it affects me and changes my life. And these are the last few verses. Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that. He'll later say, Lord, you don't desire sacrifices. You desire a broken heart, a contrite spirit. You desire my, me inside, right? All right. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll go and enjoy some time with other believers. Heavenly Father, we want to be in awe of you, increasingly so, and we want to be submissive to your perfect word. We thank you again that you're a God who reveals himself, but Father, we want to respond as David responded here, progressively so. We want to long for your self-disclosure, your revelation. We want to value it like gold. And Father, we want, to be, we want to be people where you are seen in us, as Jim just said. We, want, we know you're seen in creation. We know you're seen in your word. But we want you to be seen in us as well. So help us to be a people who are submissive to you, that are beacons of light, and that every word of our mouth and every meditation of our heart are acceptable in your sight. We ask by the power of the Holy Spirit you would make that so and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.